as we uh, continue our series, The Kingdom Come, looking at Jesus' teachings as recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, sometimes referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, we find ourselves today looking at Matthew 5, verses 38 and following. It reads this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't use violence to resist evil. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, also go the second mile. Give to anyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Matthew's uh, kind of really interested in comparing Jesus to Moses, I think. I mean, as we read through the gospel, um, Jesus is constantly going up on a mountain, either to hear from God or to speak for God. Here in chapters 5, 6, and 7, he goes on the mountain. He goes to the mountain of transfiguration. He's actually on a mountain when he's crucified. And when he goes up on the mountain, he'll often quote Moses. He'll, he'll say things like, you have heard it said, and he'll say something from the Old Testament like, don't commit murder, but I say to you not to hate. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you not to lust. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, but I say to you, love your enemy. And then like this passage today, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What's interesting about this to me, or one of the things that's interesting about it, is that I've often heard kind of growing up that the Old Testament was about the law, the New Testament was about the grace, the Old Testament was about a standard that we couldn't live up to, and so God had to come and kind of rescue us and give us Jesus because we couldn't live up to this extraordinarily high standard of the Old Testament. The challenge with that, of course, is that doesn't seem to be at all the way Jesus understands things. I mean, each of these occasions where he says, you have heard it said, and he quotes the Old Testament, and then he lays out a new standard for the community. His standard's not lower, but it's higher. I mean, just think about this. Let's take a couple of them. You've heard it said, love your neighbor. Now, I realize sometimes that can be a challenge for us. But Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, but I say, love your enemy. Or let's take the one about um, adultery. Like, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. This isn't in some obscure passage, right? This is in like the Big Ten, the ones that got edged out on the stone, right? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, don't lust. One of those is harder than the other, right? I mean, committing adultery, you have to make a lot of bad decisions before you actually commit adultery. Like, it's not like you're in aisle seven of Publix and you like accidentally commit adultery. Like, oh, man, I should have gone down aisle seven, done aisle six, evil number. But you can lust on any aisle in Publix or anywhere else you are. Jesus' standards aren't less. He doesn't seem to treat what we call the Old Testament as some unattainable thing. He kind of treats it as a basic standard for the community and now that he's forming his new community, which is even more inclusive, the, the entry level might be extraordinarily low. We talked about this last week as we looked at the Beatitudes. People who would normally be excluded, people who we think aren't blessed, Jesus says are blessed. Are you poor? You're blessed. Are you mournful? You're blessed. Are you meek? You're blessed. 
Are you hungry and thirsty for justice because everything goes against you? That You're blessed. Are you persecuted? You're blessed. I think what he's saying there is everybody's blessed because everybody's welcome into the kingdom. But right on the heels of that, he, he launches into this discussion of you have heard it said, but I say to you, and each one of his examples, he's taken it up a notch. So let's look at this one. You've heard it said, but I say to you, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This idea of retribution, that the, the punishment should match the crime, was actually a new idea uh, when it was being introduced in the ancient world. Because instead of letting the punishment match the crime, which I might say, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is not the minimum punishment that you had to give. It was the maximum punishment that you had to give. So if someone took your tooth, you couldn't cut off their head, right? So a tooth for a tooth. If someone took your eye, it doesn't mean that you can kill all of their children, right? It was, it was putting a cap on the punishment. It didn't mean we had to go that far, but it mean we couldn't go farther than that. Because the problem was, in the ancient world, they would try and use excessive force as a deterrent. Like, you kill one of my sheep, I'm going to kill seven of your sheep. Because I'm bad to the bone and you're not going to mess with me. In fact, this is exactly what the uh, Bible says about Cain. Remember Cain and Abel? Right? Cain killed his brother, Abel. That same Cain is discussed in Genesis chapter 4 as being someone who responded sevenfold. Real tough guy. The problem with that, of course, is that violence begets violence. And it escalates. All right, I kill one of Phil's sheep. He comes and kills seven of my sheep. I go back and kill his whole flock and Kevin's and Mike's and Debbie's. And then what happens? It's an all-out war. There was a descendant of Cain. His name was Lamech. Not to be confused with the descendant of Seth, whose name was Lamech, that was the father of Noah. They, apparently they didn't have enough names to go around back then. <laughs> but there's a, there's a Lamech in chapter 4 of Genesis. It reads like this. This is Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, 77-fold. So we, we think that uh, excessive violence can kind of cure our aid or cure our problems, our ails. And so here's a descendant of Cain who's taken his ancestry and he's ramped it up as if Sevenfold wasn't already the wrong thing to do. We're already moving in the wrong direction. He takes it and he doubles down on it, or more than doubles down, right? He's, that was 70-fold. I'm going to do 77-fold. We're going we're to hit them so hard they're not going to know what happened to them. This reminds me, I think, of an, a passage in, in the New Testament. The disciples of Jesus are, are learning the ways of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the way in which he deals with people and they're starting to catch on that this is a different kind of kingdom. This is not a kingdom that comes by force. This is a kingdom that comes by sacrifice. 
This is a kingdom that comes with love and, and mercy and justice and peace. So Peter will say, Peter has this like bright idea. I think he's wanting to you know, be the smart kid in the class. So he raises his hand. Jesus said, yes, Peter. Peter said, so when someone uh, harms me or does me wrong, I should forgive them seven times in a day. Like he's getting it, right? I'm not just going to forgive them once. I'm going to forgive them seven times. Sounds like a lot, right? As if, as if I'm, I'm not just going to do the basics. I'm going to be the opposite of Cain. Cain struck people back seven times. I'm going to forgive them seven times. Only if he knew. Jesus is like, no, no, Peter, sit back down. We're not going to be the opposite of Cain. We're going to be the opposite of Lamech. We're going to, we're going to forgive seven times 70 per day. Which, which I think is still just a metaphor, right? It's a hyperbole. It's like we're forgivers, right? This is, this, is what, this is what makes us up. These are the type of people we are. So this passage of Scripture, the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I say to you not to resist uh, evil or not to resist with evil. Um, and then he does the turn the other cheek and the give them your uh, coat and go the second mile. It's a passage that I think has often been misunderstood it can be read as though Jesus is advocating non-resistance. And some of our translations even read that way. Don't resist evil. And so, I mean, that, that sounds like a dangerous statement in a, in a culture, right? Is a, is a woman not supposed to resist evil if she's, uh, advances are being made on her by another man or by her husband? Are, are children not supposed to resist evil? Um, are we collectively not supposed to resist evil? I mean, what's, what's being said uh, in this context? And so the eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, again, was, was kind of a maximum uh, punishment. Uh, and so Jesus is like, look, I've, I've got even a better way. And he gives us three examples as to what he means by what I think is not so much non-resistance, but is non-violent resistance. When he says, uh, don't resist evil, the word there, evil, this is a little technical, but it's, it's worth explaining, I think. The word there, evil, is an adjective, and it could be used as, as the object of the infinitive to resist, but it can also be used uh, in the original language as a description of means, like the manner in which it's done. And so if it's taken the first way, then Jesus is actually advocating non-resistance. But if it's taken the second way, he's advocating nonviolent resistance. So it's not non-resistance that Jesus is actually interested in, but uh, not retaliating. And so he gives us three examples. And of all this list in Matthew 5 where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, this is the only one. He gives us about six, but this is the only one where he then gives us examples to explain what he means. And I think he's doing so because this is the one that's most contrary to the way we often live. So it gives us these three examples, the, the turn the other cheek. So um, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, he says, turn to him your other. So in this uh, scenario, I want you to imagine uh, Jesus and the people around him and the types of folk that would normally get backhanded, right? If somebody is striking you on the right cheek, um, the idea behind that is they're kind of slapping you uh, with their hand. 
kind of a backhanded, open-handed slap. Now, slapping somebody is not exactly a uh, form of self-defense, right? You're not actually trying to hurt them as much as you're trying to embarrass them. I mean, who would you backhand? Um, you backhand children, right, if you're that type of person. <laughs> you might uh, backhand, backhand a dog, right? A Roman soldier might backhand a Jewish man. Hey, get, get out of my way, Jew. You know, I'm, I'm here with the Roman military. Stand down. So if somebody has slapped you on the right cheek, you, you have a few options. You can, you can fight back, right? You can match violence for violence, kind of evil for evil. But I think it's clear that Jesus is definitely telling us not to do that. You could cower down, you know, just drop your head, backpedal, sorry, Mr. Roman, didn't mean to get in your way. That, I think, is utter non-resistance. And I don't think Jesus is advocating that either. If you turn to them your left cheek, them having struck you on the right, they're not going to strike you on the right cheek again because your right cheek is now turned away from them. Your left cheek is now exposed and a lot of things might happen. They might beat the snot out of you, as they used to say, which could, which could be bad. Or, or they could ask you, what are you doing? I mean, if, if they do punch you, they're not going to backhand you on the right cheek again. Because the only thing they have available to them is their left cheek. Which could be worse if they, you know, ball up and hit it. But they, you know, you can't come at somebody that way. And so it's a way of kind of resisting the violence of the Romans without just being a doormat and kind of caving into the Romans. It doesn't, it doesn't require um, kind of an instigation, although some people think of it as that, right? To, to any, kind, any type of resistance is provocation to violence. But that says more about the way the world works it says more about the violence that seems to be in the fabric of our cultures and in the, in the DNA of our lives that the only way to respond to nonviolence is with violence. But it's not the case, and it, certainly there are occasions where, where nonviolence has changed the world. One of the most powerful empires in the history of humanity is Great Britain. They used to say, the sun cannot set on the empire. Because by the time the sun's going down on one side of the globe, it's coming up on the other, and Great Britain owned land all the way around. It had the most powerful military, the most powerful economy. And there was this little, bald, skinny dude in India who, through nonviolent resistance, expelled the most powerful government economy and military in the world. That's change. Martin Luther King Jr., as he led his protest in the 1960s, uh, taught from this passage of Scripture 
about nonviolent resistance. Right? We're not going to fight. We're not going to fight back. If someone spits on you, they spit on you. If someone hits you, they hit you. But we're not going to fight back. If they release dogs, they release dogs. If they release the police, the police. If they release fire hoses, fire hoses. But we're going to practice the teachings of Jesus. And a people group who had been marginalized in lots of ways, legally, uh, changed the culture. A culture that is still sick in a lot of ways, a culture that still needs work, but a culture that was changed through nonviolent resistance. Let's look at the second example. In the second example, it says, um, the second example uh, in the, the text that I read was, sue you for the coat and the shirt. I don't know what translation I got that from. We're gonna, second example, we're going to talk about go the second mile. So this is a very interesting one, again, in kind of historical context. The Romans, when they occupied uh, people groups, they had a sense in which, well, you know, we're the military, we're, we're the powerful, you know, it's our government, it's our economy, it's our military. But on the, on the one hand, they didn't care too much about the people groups that they were conquering. On the other hand, they were smart enough not to try and instigate uh, rebellion. So you can press a people group, but you don't want to press them too far. And so they actually put rules on the Roman military about how they could treat people groups when they conquered a land. And one of the rules that they put up, because the Romans had built this wonderful kind of road system to kind of move their military around. And so one of the rules they put up was a Roman soldier could force a Jewish man to carry his pack for a mile. But after a mile, and they had mile markers, but after a mile, you had to let that guy go back to his job, whether he was you know, fishing on the Sea of Galilee or doing carpentry work in Sepphoris or if he was a farmer somewhere in the Jezreel. Right? You had to let him go back. And so Jesus says if somebody forces you to carry your pack for a mile, then carry it for a second one. So in the first one, you've done what's required of you legally by the occupying force. In the second one, though, now you're kind of voluntarily kind of serving this power of occupation. If you keep walking at that mile marker, again, this doesn't necessarily mean things are going to work out well for you, right? The Roman soldier might think you're trying to steal his pack and come at you, right? But at least there is a moment there as you keep walking to go the second mile that now you're not following the Roman soldier. The Roman soldier is following you. And you're leading your oppressor in a way of peace. You're showing the one who would hurt you there is another way to live in the world and I can choose to do this. It's a way of resisting the evil but not using evil in the act of resistance. And hopefully not instigating violence. Again, if, if it does instigate violence, it's not really your fault. I think it says more about them than it does about you. But it's not the goal. The last one is kind of funny, um, and we're, we're not going to act this out. But it says, if someone sues you for your coat, give them your shirt as well. Now, the reason this is funny 
is because in the ancient world, they didn't have closets. They didn't have, like, lots of clothes. Like, if somebody sued me for my coat and then I gave them my shirt, I would just go to the closet and grab another coat and another shirt. But these people, they, they would only most likely have two pieces of clothing. You'd wear both pieces of clothing if it was cold, and when it got hot, you'd take off your outer one. Now, in the ancient world, uh, they didn't have hanger way. They didn't have Fruit of the Loom. They didn't have BVD. They didn't have Calvin Klein. So, if someone sued you for your outer garment and you gave them your inner garment, what are you? Naked. Yeah, you're naked. Uh, that's why we're not going to act this out. <laughs> but when, when Jesus was teaching this, you know, there were some conservative uh, Pharisees standing around. You know, and there's a lot of guys that, that probably laughed at this. Like, hey, did you hear that preacher? He just, he just did a naked joke. <laughs> it's not like any teacher I've heard before. <laughs> right? And so I'm sure there were some of the fishermen, some of the carpenters, some of the farmers. They probably laughed at it and like, hey, I kind of like this guy. But then there were probably some of the Pharisees that were like, hmm. Preachers shouldn't make naked jokes. <laughs> Churches sitting so video clips of Star Wars and the TV on the Sunday morning. That's not that's not the way you worship God. Yeah, so Jesus Jesus tells a naked joke. And some people probably laughed and some people probably scoffed. But they all got the point. That I mean who in the ancient world, as much like the, the contemporary world in this regard, when you sue someone, you don't normally sue them for their clothes. What do you sue them for? You sue them for money. Yes, exactly. If you're suing someone and what you're getting from them is not money but clothes, what does that say about the economic status of the person being sued? Yeah, pretty low. <laughs> right? You're taking some poor person to court and they don't have any money anyway. That's evil. But then to resist in a nonviolent way and say, here, why don't you take this too, kind of flips, flips the game. It, it's a way of, again, kind of resisting evil without adopting evil means with which to resist it. The empire comes. And it comes the way empires come, with force, with violence, with domination. Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not like this. It's not like the kingdoms of the world. If it were, my people would take up arms and, you know, we'd fight you. Some people take that to mean that Jesus' kingdom is not about the earth, it's about heaven. But that doesn't seem to fit the rest of Jesus' message, right? Jesus' message is the kingdom is coming here, right? The prayer that we pray is for the will of God and the kingdom of God that's being accomplished in heaven will come to earth. The coming of Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom that is radically inclusive. Blessed are the poor and the meek and the mournful and the sorrowful and the, if you're persecuted and if you hunger and thirst for justice... 
the turn, the go the second mile, turn the other cheek, give them your shirt when they sue you for your coat, judge not lest you be judged, kingdom. But it's right here. It's a way in which we can live. And in the opening call to worship, the video call to worship that we did with Brian Zahn, I mean, he challenged us. He challenged that this is easier on a personal level than it is on, on a societal level. Which is tough, and I'd be happy to get there. But, but before we do, let me just say this. It's not exactly easy on a personal level. It's much easier to retaliate. And retaliation can be different types of things. I mean, obviously, you get in a fight with your spouse, and you can, you know, they're aggressive, so you're aggressive. They yelled, they raised their voice, you raise your voice. They, they pull back your hand, you pull back your hand, right? You just kind of mirror each other in, in kind of violent activity. And I think we might all be able to agree that that's not healthy, right? We, we, don't, we don't want to respond with, to evil with evil because it escalates the problem, it doesn't solve the problem. But if I'm understanding Jesus' teaching here, this doesn't only say do not respond to aggression with aggression. It would also say don't respond to aggression with passive aggression. Passive aggressiveness doesn't help de-escalate the situation any better than aggression does. Right? So you get upset and so, you, you know, you just shut down. You don't speak. You get upset and so you intentionally do things that you know irritate the other. Whether, whether it's uh, with your children or whether it's with your spouse or whether it's with somebody at your work or maybe it's your boss, whether, whether it's me. I don't know what I'd be upset about if that you did, but I can imagine a few things maybe. Your, your passive aggressiveness doesn't help because conflict avoidance is not peacemaking. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers not the conflict avoiders. And we don't make peace by escalating violence. We make peace by finding ways to non-violently, non, in a non-retaliatory kind of way, uh, address evil. Like, I don't think we have to wink at evil. We don't have to ignore it. We don't have to be kind of passive, P-A-S-S-I-V-E, receptors of it. Um, there's a difference there, right? A pacifist and a pacifist, they sound, they're, they're homonyms, they sound the same. Uh, but one of them is spelled with two S's and it means you just kind of back down, you're passive, not active. The other is spelled P-A-C-I, right? F-I-C-M, uh, I-S-M. And at the, the root of that word is, is pox, peace, right? It's a peacemaker. How do we make peace? You make peace by resolving conflict not by avoiding conflict. You make peace by responding to it in, in nonviolent ways, not just find, finding passive-aggressive ways or just aggressive ways. We can do this in our own lives, but then we're also challenged, I think, to be champions of this in our culture. There is kind of systemic injustice that takes place in our culture. People get marginalized. Uh, their rights get taken away. They get kind of treated as though they're not full members of the community. We have a long history of this, right, in the United States. For the longest time, you had to be a white male to vote. Yeah? Government for the people, by the people, if you're a white guy. 
And then we allowed uh, black men to vote. And then we allowed women to vote. And I, I hope, I hope that you feel that, at least in our culture anyway, that voting is something that should take place for all people, not just some people. And I'm not advocating you voting here. I'm just saying that the way in which our systems work are not neutral. And that we should resist those systems that would harm others. Leviticus says, treat the foreigner as one who is native born. Treat the foreigner as one who is native born. Remember that you too were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. That's, that's pretty straightforward, I think. Actually, actually, I don't think there's any ambiguity in that. Jesus says, the next passage right after this one, you have heard it said, love your neighbor. I'm telling you to love your enemy. When Jesus said, love your enemy, I think he probably meant don't kill them. That's how you love somebody. You don't kill them. We should be glad that the God who we serve, God the Father, the Creator, is himself not a retaliator. Imagine if God retaliated against sin the way we retaliate against others. We'd get wiped out. And as any good father encourages their children to do, our father is encouraging us to behave like him. Be loving, be forgiving, be full of grace, be full of mercy, uh, be for justice, not injustice. Resist violence, but don't resist it with force. Try something else. We can kill a murderer, but can we kill murder? Can we kill hate? How do you overcome things like that? Things that are so deeply rooted in the problems of the world. This might sound trite to you, but it's not. You overcome it with love. You overcome it with sacrifice. The God of all creation. The Son. Through whom all things were made and all things are sustained became flesh and dwelt among us. And he was full of grace and truth. And he didn't come with an army to kill all those who disagreed. He came and laid down his life. And he died. And through that act of sacrifice, God vindicates him, raises him from the dead, and not only provides peace between us and God, but provides an example of how we can live with each other sacrificially, loving, caring, giving. There's an example of this um, actually from 2 Kings, kind of reaching back into the Old Testament. Some of these ideas that Jesus had were not um, utterly unique to him. They were ideas that God had revealed through the prophets, but that people had a hard time holding on to because they were so kind of contrary to the way we live. This passage comes from 2 Kings chapter 6, it's one of my favorites. 
Um, it's 2 Kings 6, um, beginning with verse 20. Four verses here. As soon as they entered Samaria... Um, oh, no, wait. Let me back up. You can leave that on the screen for a second. Uh, that's, that's the end of the passage. There's a king from Syria. This is funny. And by funny, I mean ironic. Because Syria is in the news like every day. There was a king from Syria, literally down the street from Aleppo, from the ancient city of Damascus. And he had this bright idea that he would attack Israel, attack the Israelites. And so he told his generals, hey, tomorrow we're going to go down to the city. The Israelite army's there, and we're going to attack them. We're going to kill them. We're going to wipe those folks out. We're not going to have to worry about our southern border anymore. And they got there, and the Israelite army was gone. This happened a couple of times. And so um, he brought in uh, his generals, and he's like, all right, boys, uh, somebody's a spy. Somebody's telling the Israelites uh, what we're going to do, and they move before we get there. So I don't know who it is, but somebody's here head's going to roll out of this tent because this ain't going to happen again. And they're like, no, 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 king, it's not us. It's that man of God. It doesn't even say his name. It says that it's that man of God down in Dothan. Not Dothan, Alabama. <laughs> Dothan, Israel. Down in Dothan, he, he knows what's said even in your bedchamber. So the king, you know, light bulb goes off, says, this is easy. Just this one guy down in Dothan, we're going to go to Dothan. We're going to kill that guy. And then we're going to capture the Israelite army. So they take the Syrian army, down to Dothan. And they surround this one guy's house, like an army versus one guy. They surround his house, not just one guy there, I guess there are two guys there, because there's the prophet, Elisha, and his, uh, his um, assistant, Gehazi. So Gehazi steps out, and he, he looks around, and he sees the Syrian army, and he's like, oh, no. Today's the day. He goes back in. He tells the prophet. He's like, um, sorry, buddy. Uh, it's been good working for you. <laughs> and the prophet, Elisha, says, what's wrong? There are more for us than against us. Like This guy's gone crazy. He's like flipped his lid. There's not more for us against us. There's two of us, and there's an army outside. And so the prophet prays. And Gehazi, the, the, his assistant, steps back out and when he looks, it says he saw an army of angels. Then Elijah steps out, he prays a second time, and the Assyrian army goes blind. And so they lead the Syrian army from Dothan to Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, and the Israelite army encircles the Syrian army. So Israel's army is encamped all around this blind Syrian army. And the prophet prays for a third time and the Syrians receive their sight back. They finally found the Israelites. <laughs> but it wasn't what they wanted. Right? Because now they're, they're captured. So this is where this verse picks up. 
As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw that they were inside Samaria. And when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, Father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? He answered, No. Did you capture with your sword and your bow those whom you want to kill? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and let them go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. After they ate and drank, he sent them on their way and they went to their master. And the Armenians no longer came raiding into the land of Israel. Who would have thought that the best thing you can do for your enemy is feed them lunch? Feed them lunch when you have them cornered and you could have killed them. And had they killed the army, then there would have been another army coming from Syria from the north. It says that they never attacked Israel again. We've all done wrong. Yet, Jesus invites us to the table. He offers to feed us lunch, not to kill us. And I know, I mean, I, we don't see ourselves as enemies of God, and I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't see myself that way. I wouldn't see you all that way. But I would say this, that we've all been at odds with God before. And God's response to that enmity that we have had is to invite us to the table is to feed us lunch is to respond to evil with peace is to find a way to be in this type of kingdom whether it's on a personal level or community level or larger societal level if we are truly going to be disciples of Jesus, if we're going to be followers of the Christ, who himself says that he does the will of the Father, then we're going to have to find a way to be people of peace. People who resist evil, who resist injustice, but who don't adopt the ways of the empire to do it. Ironically, this story... This theme gets played out in the life of Obi-Wan there in the Star Wars film. Instead of fighting Darth Vader, he dies or fades away. He and Yoda, they're the only two people who ever like to pass away. Everybody else just dies. The little robe just kind of faints down. Remember in the third one when, when, Foda, when Yoda just fades away? It's a powerful message. It's a message rooted in the teachings of Jesus. I've said this before. It's one of the things that make Jesus' teaching stand out from other great religious thinkers, successful leaders of religious groups. Moses... Moses was the epitome of leadership in, in, in Jewish history. And he says, Moses says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it's great. It's an improvement. It's, it's better than what had been going on. 
But Jesus says, don't resist with evil means. Turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Give them your shirt when they sue you for your coat. God, help us. Help us to come to the table. Help us to receive deep within our hearts your forgiveness. And may that forgiveness transform us, mold us, shape us into people who are easily identifiable as disciples of Christ.